Let's transition to scripture so we can listen to God. James 5. If you remember, we are emphasizing this year learning to pray. We believe that the reason prayer is so difficult for us individually and collectively as people is because no one has actually taught us how to pray. It's not that God made prayer so difficult that all human beings for all time find it impossible to live lives of prayer, but because our age has made it particularly hard to learn to pray. Perpetual distraction, continual, um, uh, yeah, we hate boredom. We hate anything that could quiet us and not distract us. And so prayer becomes very, very difficult. So in Luke 11.1, 1, we encapsulated this with a single disciple comes to Jesus and says, Lord, teach us to pray. They would have already been surrounded and immersed by a community of prayer being Jewish men in the first century, but they still felt the need to be taught how to live lives of prayer. So if we were to summarize what we want to be at the end of 2023, is that we would become a church and followers of Jesus individually who are people of prayer, not merely people who pray. That prayer would be what occurs naturally in the flow of our life, that we would be more dependent on God in prayer. And the three simple commitments that we think will be necessary to cultivate that are first, a culture of honesty, that we could just open our hands and say prayer is really difficult and I fail to depend on God in prayer continually. That's true of us in this room. That's true of me as an elder in our church. Secondly, we must form an absolute conviction though that our struggle to pray means we got to learn to pray. That we can't stay in honest throwing up our hands, but we need to set our face to learning what God is willing to teach us by his spirit and, the, and, and following Jesus, Right? And third, that we must have courage to do the scary work of rearranging our lives to learn to pray. It will be disruptive to learn to pray. We'll need to get up earlier or go to bed uh, early, or, earlier. Yeah, uh, We'll need to, to learn to pray by reading stuff that we wouldn't otherwise read. We need to be open with one another in community more often. We need to ask people to pray for us about something that we would have just prayed for ourselves about. We need to have courage to step into the shaky territory of learning to pray together. So part four. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, the vision of prayer. One of the reasons I think that we don't pray, and this is the last uh, specific teaching that we'll have on bad theology regarding prayer, is that we don't see the world as the scriptures do. That is to say, we don't see the world as God has actually created it. So would you stand with me for the reading of Scripture? We're going to be in James 5, verses 13 through 18. James is historically uh, the younger brother of Jesus. He was a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And this is uh, part of his letter toward the end of the letter. He says this, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we open ourselves now to you individually and collectively that we might hear you through the scriptures by your spirit. Would you shine the glory of Jesus into our hearts? Would you illuminate for us our minds that we would see the world as you created it? That is, that we would see the world as it really is and how prayer fits and flows with the nature of the lives that we have been called to live as you really created the world. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to uh, disrupt our assumptions right now. Uh, Would you give us wisdom right now? And would you allow us to enter into the mystery of the kingdom of heaven being here on earth as we strive to enter into it following you, Jesus? In your name, amen. All right, you can take a seat. So this is, this is one of, if I'm honest, the most confusing passages of Scripture for a lot of my notions that I naturally bring to the Scriptures about the ways that I perceive the world to work, about the ways that we assume the world works, um, about the way that we assume our Christian life works. Francis Schaeffer was a 20th century theologian and apologist, and he saw one of the most urgent issues in the Western church that is, most of us uh, who have been raised in the Western world, especially among young people, as many of us are, that one of the most urgent issues was the lack of experiencing reality with God. That is, that, that following Jesus is not merely a philosophy for a good way of living or a religious idealism that tells us how to get to heaven when we die but a kind of here and now world we're immersed in that we can experience. So he described the critical difference between a materialist worldview, that is that stuff and what we can see and feel and observe is all there is, versus a supernatural worldview that views what is unseen and yet just as real woven into the material of what's visible. He described it as this. He said, I would like to suggest that the natural only versus the supernatural worldview may be illustrated by two chairs. The people who sit in these chairs look at the universe in two different ways. We are all sitting in one or the other of these chairs at every single moment of our lives. The first sits in his chair and faces this total reality of the universe, the seen part and the normally unseen part, and consistently sees truth against this background. The Christian is a person who has said, I sit in this chair. The unbeliever, however, is the man who sits in the other chair intellectually. He sees only the natural part of the universe and interprets truth against that background. Let us see that these two positions cannot both be true. One is true, one is false. 
If indeed there is only the natural portion of the universe with a uniformity of natural causes in a closed system, then to sit in the other chair is to delude oneself. If, however, there are two halves of reality, or we could say two realities woven together, then to sit in the naturalist chair is to be extremely naive and to misunderstand the universe completely. From the Christian viewpoint, no man has ever been so naive nor so ignorant of the universe as the 20th century man. However, to be a true Bible-believing Christian, we must understand that it is not enough simply to acknowledge that the universe has two halves. So what he's not saying is, we need to merely acknowledge or, or agree that, yeah, there's unseen stuff. The Christian life means living in the two halves of reality, the supernatural and the natural. I would suggest that it is perfectly possible for a Christian to be so infiltrated by 20th century thinking that he lives most of his life through a, as though the supernatural were not there. Indeed, I would suggest that all of us do this to some extent. The supernatural does not touch the Christian only at the new birth and then at his death or at the second coming of Christ, leaving the believer on his own in a naturalistic world during all the time in between. Nothing could be further from the biblical view. Being a biblical Christian means living in the supernatural now, not only theoretically, but in practice. If a man sits in the one chair and denies the existence of the supernatural portion of the world, we say he's an unbeliever. What shall we call ourselves when we sit in the other chair but live as though the supernatural were not there? Should not such an attitude be given the name unfaith? Unbelief, unfaith. Unfaith is the Christian not living in the light of the supernatural now. It is Christianity that has become a dialectic or simply a good philosophy. Now, I read that long section because I think what he said 43 years ago-ish, maybe closer to 50 years ago, is even more pertinent for us here and now. And it's one of the fundamental reasons we do not pray. Because we believe that the world is not only materialistic, but also that if we just live according to our own abilities and wisdom, we can control the world pretty well. By the end of that, we start really not needing to pray. And when we do, we throw some words toward God and just say, do with it what you want, rather than actually wrestling with Him. Okay? So, many of us have heard of the phrase unbelief, but unfaith might be more important for us this morning. My hope is today that as we close our Bad Theology and Prayer mini-series, that James will drop us into the middle of the wild adventure following our Lord into the fray of the kingdom going forward through a praying church. All we're going to do this morning, I'm not going to try and resolve these tensions, but all we're going to do this morning is make several observations about how James assumes things about praying. Okay? And I'm not going to resolve a lot. Hopefully you walk out of here a little bewildered. Like, i got to search for some resolution in here because if that's true, it changes a lot of the way that I've been living my Christian life. I'm very okay with that. We'll have a discussion table afterwards, and so you can come back there, and we can wrestle through some things. But we're going to take seven observations and one example, and then we're just going to pray together, as we've been doing, out loud all together. 
All right. How can we pray rightly to incorporate the spiritual integration of the world and the relational reality of following Jesus in the with God life? First thing we see is that we ought to pray in everything to cultivate a Godward vision of life. James starts it, and he says, are any of you suffering? Pray. Are any of you cheerful? Give thanks. Sing praises. Another aspect of prayer, communication and communion with God. Are any of you sick? Call the elders of the church and have them pray for you. James is essentially saying, in every circumstance, you ought to pray. It's very obvious, but it needs to be said. We should strive to be able to pray in all things. If you're walking along a trail up in Santa Monica Mountains and just overwhelmed by the beauty of that, incorporate the presence of God and simply say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. First one. Start off pretty simple, right? Nothing too scandalous there. Second observation. Community matters in prayer. Community matters in prayer. James says, if anyone's sick, call the elders of the church. That is, not simply to pray in all of life, but to incorporate others into praying in all of life. Share your pain and suffering and sickness as needs in the church, the community with brothers and sisters. God is oftentimes more inclined to answer prayer that is shared than kept private because we were made for communion not only with him, but also with one another. God desires that we would love one another in our vulnerability and weakness, not in our strength and lack of need. Thirdly, well, let, let me just say, that's why we have a prayer team here on Sundays, so that you would always have someone here that you could go and, and receive prayer and ask for answers to prayer. But it's not just them. You can ask each other here on Sundays. Like, whoa. And let's not have it be weird if someone comes up to us and says, hey, I know you a little bit. Would you pray for me? Community matters in prayer. Third, authority matters in prayer. It says, call the elders of the church. This hits at the heart of some of our unfaith because elders, elders, if you're not familiar, that's a title for what we commonly call pastors in the church. And so James doesn't say, just share your need with community. For some reason, he thought it important to say, if you're sick, call the elders of the church. And we need to imagine ourselves in a first century context, like sickness was a lot more real and life-threatening in many cases that we would just say, hey, pop an ibuprofen. Like some of you might call me and say, pastor, I have a cough. James says, call the elders of the church. It's 2 a.m. Can you come and pray for me? I might say, God has also given us glorious gifts of grace in uh, taking some NyQuil. Let's talk in the morning. This is not saying we need to kind of recede from culture and the gifts of grace that God has given us, but imagine that, that like you're sick on your bed with COVID, right? More serious gravity behind sickness. James says, call the elders of the church. First observation, right now our church has one elder. That's me. This is plural. This is not ideal. So pray for your church that other elders would be raised up. And if you sense any desire to serve as an elder in the church, come and talk to me because we want to be as close to scripture as possible. And this is a huge need. 
But there are probably two kinds of resistance to that thought of calling the elders in the church. First is, well, why do I need an elder? Why couldn't it just be anybody? What's so special? I don't know what's so special other than the fact that people who have been appointed through Scripture into offices in the church, our church has the office of elder and the office of deacon, are people who have proven themselves as servants in the church. Those who defer from themselves towards others, going through 1 Timothy 3 and other places where Scripture speaks of it, that they could be entrusted with responsibility to serve in the church. And for some reason, God says, call them. Secondly, some of us must, might just have a general mistrust for anyone in authority in the room. And I just want to acknowledge that abuses of authority in the world, in the church, are real. They're why Jesus came to lay down his life. They're why Jesus has given his spirit, not just so that we can say, I believe in Jesus so I can go to heaven when I die, but so that the evil and the darkness that would abuse authority could actually be transformed to look like Jesus and be stewarded for others. That's why we do what we do as a church, not just to get as many people in when they die, but that the kingdom of God could actually change people here and now. And so leaders in our church need to be people who are becoming more good after the image of Jesus. So I want to both acknowledge the mistrust, the abuse, but then still say it doesn't negate what is intended by God in the church. Okay? So, as elders pray for the sick, they embody the gospel, the shepherd laying his life down for those who are sin sick. So Jesus, the chief shepherd, seems to be inclined to be honored and answer prayer of the under-shepherds as they serve the body in its weakness and sickness. You see that? Fourth, after authority matters in prayer, fourthly, physical objects affect spiritual realities. James writes that the elders would pray and anoint the person who is sick with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I don't know many of your church backgrounds in here, but for some of you, you'd say, absolutely. You come from a more charismatic background where that's just a normal thing. When someone's sick and receiving prayer, you would anoint them with oil. Others of you think that's just some sort of symbolism that, sure, that's fine for you to do, but it's certainly not necessary. We could describe it as a more charismatic uh, dis in, uh, disposition versus, uh, I don't really know what the other one would be, like symbolic view. Now we're starting to get weird, right? Or maybe our blindness is being exchanged, invited for true seeing. Scripture paints us a picture where physical activity affects spiritual reality. Not as magic, but as an integrated whole. This confronts the notion that we can believe in Jesus in some inner chamber in our hearts and have it encapsulated there not to affect everything about our life, when in fact, 
the vision of Jesus and the kingdom of God coming into the earth is the interweaving of these spiritual realities with the physical reality we live. The assumption of the New Testament is you can't say you believe in Jesus if you aren't trying to follow him. Because those are tied together. We separate the two and experience all sorts of dysfunction in the process. We wonder why Jesus doesn't feel real to us when we're not embodying his ways. But, as we pray, we must be attentive to Scripture's teaching on our integrated reality, not resisting the intermingling of physical and spiritual elements due to embarrassment or doubt or cynicism, but participating with God in the way he created the universe to work. This is what has sometimes been called an enchanted vision of reality. That what is spiritual is woven into and right behind what we can see. And all the way up until the Enlightenment in the 18th century was it the natural view of humankind and outside of the Western world is still the normal view of humankind. You could also call it a sacramental reality. The Greek word mysterion was translated into Latin two, by two terms, mysterium and sacramentum. Sacraments uh, we hold as the Lord's Supper in the bread and the cup, and baptism as being immersed into the death of Jesus and raised in the new life of the Spirit. The word sacrament, though, emphasizes the visible sign of the hidden reality of salvation in the physical action. So we already believe in this world, that somehow, someway, Jesus is present in the midst of these activities that we participate in, and we experience him in a way that we do through these things in a way that we would not otherwise. So, for instance, taking the Lord's Supper is actually us participating with Jesus in his death. It's a mystery. I don't have, pretend to have the answer in it. Baptism is us literally being immersed in the death of Jesus and raised in new life in Jesus. That's why in the New Testament it's assumed that the Spirit comes upon those who are baptized. Do you see how we've kind of separated those two in our day? So, in the same way, anointing with oil embodies faith in a way that invites the Holy Spirit to bring healing for no other reason then trust that God meets the faith-filled act with the power of God. You see how there's really no reason that you would do that other than saying, I take you at your word, Lord. That's faith. Are we tracking? In the New Testament, in the Gospel accounts, we see that the disciples of Jesus start anointing the sick with oil, and we see that they're healed. But in the Old Testament, what was anointing with oil used for? Kings, priests. In the Old Testament, anointing with oil was an invitation of God to anoint and rest upon the leaders of God's people. In the New Testament, anointing with oil goes to the bottom, to the sick, to the weak. God, come and help and be present with those even who in the eyes of the world are the least likely to encounter your power. 
You see the upside down of the New Testament. Gospel of Jesus. So, we live in an enchanted reality that's not magic and it's not just symbolism. God will do things as we participate with him in a way that he would not if we refuse. All right. Fifth thing. Faith matters in prayer. James says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. Now, clarify what we don't mean by faith is some psychological assurance that musters up positivity and brazen confidence. Doesn't dump the person who's like laid up because of a bad leg onto the floor and just expect them to walk and if they fall down, it's a lack of faith. It's not mere positivity. But we do believe that faith is trusting action. It doesn't mean that we're perfect in our faith and that we don't have doubts. But the continual testimony of Scripture is that faith matters in prayer. James himself in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, says, When, the, when you pray, let, let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable. Whoa! But lesser known, Mark 6 says that Jesus, when he went to his hometown of Nazareth, could not do miracles because of their unbelief. Now, what we need to do is sift through a kind of cynical, off-handed, kind of stiff arm towards God that says, yeah, give me that if you really want to, but I'm not going to humble myself and be vulnerable in need before you. In Mark 9, we get a beautiful picture of what this faith with doubt intermingled looks like. There's a man who brings his child to Jesus and says, please help him. He's a combination of uh, being demonized and sick. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. You see that the leading thing, though, is the belief. It's saying, I'm bringing along my unbelief, Lord, and I'm honest with you about it. I need you to help me. Rather than saying, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of put a toe with you, but I'm really standing on my own control or my own sort of dignity, rather than faith that leads out independence on you. I don't pretend to have the answer. There's no equation to this, but faith matters. We need to know that. That's why when we pray for healing as a church or, or a miracle as a church, we literally ask out loud so that we would stir faith in one another. Do you believe that God can provide this for you? And we call the person to say, yeah, I believe. Because oftentimes we think that we doubt, but then when we speak the words out, we're like, I do believe these things. God is more pleased to answer prayer of faith. All right, rounding the home stretch. Sixth, spiritual realities affect physical realities. We just said physical realities affect spiritual realities. Now James inverts it. This is going to get real uncomfortable. James says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. This is possibly the most controversial of James's points for us today because we assume in our gospel that forgiveness was a one-time event the moment we came to Jesus. 
But it's very simple to debunk that by, by simply remembering how Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those indebted to us. James 1, or 1 John 1 says, confess your sins to one another. Um, we have the forgiveness of God secured for us in Jesus, and yet we must walk out the grace that we have received through the activity of confession and repentance together. Now we're going to walk out into mystery quite a bit more here. James is implying what Paul implies and says really explicitly in 1 Corinthians 11 and other passages of Scripture say as well. It might not be 11. 1 Corinthians, latter portion. I can give it to you specifically afterwards when we look it up. That sin can bring sickness. Sin can bring sickness. Now, there is a certain way in which this is not surprising. The sin of gluttony can bring heart disease, right? The sin of sloth can bring about purposelessness and suffering. There are all sorts of ways that we see the if-thens of living, and yet in Scripture, it's very clear that sin is not merely a spiritual thing, but it's a holistic way of living. Let me paint a picture for you. If darkness and death and the devil were reigning over the world until Jesus came, and then Jesus shines his light and the self-giving sacrifice of his death and brings it about so that all of us can enter into that light through his resurrection and the giving of the Spirit, sin is us, even who are walking in the light with him, turning back around and subjecting ourselves to the darkness. Should we not be surprised then when it has physiological effects upon us? There is an urgency in the New Testament to confession of sin, not merely so that we can grow spiritually, but because there's a reality at play. The way that we escape that reality is very simple. It's just vulnerable honesty together. And I know for many of you, you've experienced the lightness that comes in being known through confession of sin. The same is true for our bodies, our minds, and it really affects our health holistically. So, the elders should confess their sins to one another, that they might be conduits for spiritual power in their praying for healing. The one who is sick should be confessing their sins so that maybe the cause of sin or the sickness can actually be given over. I feel the tension in here. It's okay. We just have to be honest and see it and say, I don't understand how all that works. We're underneath the mercy and love of God. Praise Jesus. But we better enter into what Scripture says clearly. We want to be a church that prays. This is one of the desperate reasons we have for prayer. Let's walk in vulnerability together into the light of Jesus. It's one of the reasons that we had Joey earlier lead us through a prayer of confession and time for confession because we have to learn this kind of way of living. All right, lastly, seven. Practical righteousness yields spiritual authority. 
Practical righteousness yields, yields spiritual authority. James says this very clearly. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. James just very bluntly says, those who have matured in walking with God to where not only do they have the imputed righteousness of Jesus, their sins paid for on the cross, but they're working out the practical righteousness of having no outstanding debt of sin towards others or towards God, that's what righteousness means, are people for whom God is very pleased to answer their prayers. 1 Peter 3 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Note this is spoken into a very misogynistic, patriarchal, uh, wives are the possessions of husbands kind of culture. And so he's saying, love your wives for the sake of your prayers. The way that we live, the way that we honor God, means that our prayers are, are heard to an inclined heart. And it makes sense, right? Why would God bless people with answers to prayer who are living totally contradictory to his life intentionally? God's grace and mercy can still answer our prayers. I'm not saying that, but I'm trying to tighten the tension to say, this is the kind of life that we want to live. It's not all bifurcated and my spiritual life's over here, but I can kind of skim off the top. It's almost tax season, right? Oh yeah, I'm going to skim off the top of my taxes and then show up in church and be like, oh, praise you God, praise you God. He sees that. It's dishonoring to him, even if it's private. Amen. All right. So, take heart, church. Take heart. It's not just, uh, well, let me say this. This kind of life is available to us. The example that James brings up is Elijah. Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament, 2 King, or 1 Kings 17, says that he prayed uh, for it not to rain, and then he prayed for it to rain. It didn't rain for three years, and then it rained. But he says he was a human being like us. We were created to walk with God and see power in prayer, see vitality in our life with him, experiencing Jesus as real, not just some figment for the future. And I want to encourage you to take heart. It should feel complicated, but what I don't want is despair or defeatedness. But the kind of wild vision that could say, if, if God gives us this instruction because he wants to fill our prayers with power and effect and reality. Let's take hold of it, right? This makes me want to pray. You mean if someone's sick, you give us instruction into seeing them healed? And we've seen that as a people. I've experienced miraculous healing of dozens of food allergies in a moment of being prayed for. We see it with some regularity, where someone has aches and pains and they experience healing. It's learning to pray, learning to walk with God, forsaking the assumptions that we bring into our discipleship to Jesus and saying, Lord, open our minds, teach us the way of life with God. I want that. Hopefully, what we take away is a posture to say, we need to bow our knees before God and invite more Holy Spirit to teach us this way that we have been blind to. Can we do that?
Good. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, just as we have the last couple of weeks. We're going to pray all together, out loud. Um, and I want us to do a few things in these 10 minutes or so that we're going to pray. Um, what we're going to do, a few things that we can do in obedience to James 5. We can confess our sins. We can ask God for healing. We can invite God's Spirit to move among us and make Jesus more real to us. And we can pray and invite God to work in our city to open the eyes of those who are in darkness to see the glory of Jesus. Holy Spirit, please bring renewal in us. Revive our hearts that we would, uh, that we would know we have not been foolish to follow Jesus. That we would see... Uh, his glory that is unmatched. Help us to relinquish control and expertise and efficiency as modes of real living and to receive afresh the fact that we were made for your presence. Help us to live with one another in openness. Help us to be receptive to you, Holy Spirit. Help us to dwell under your scriptures and your word that you have made clear to us and make us like children again. Jesus, you said the kingdom is for those who enter it like children. And so help us to see that it is not being naive, but being filled with faith to look to our wondrous Father in heaven, our big brother Jesus, and the presence of your spirit that we could see your kingdom go forward in our city, that we could see uh, disciples made and matured in our church, and that we would become people of prayer. We trust you for it. Please help us. Uh, we need your mercy. Lead us. Um, confront us where we need to be confronted. Heal us where we need healing. Strengthen us where we need strength. And Lord, we trust you. We know that you will do good by us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.